0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The good
1: thing about about self-help and personal development is that sometimes, you know, people read all this stuff, but something finally clicks. I mean, there's some things I've read before, but, you know, suddenly I read something, James Clear, of all people, wrote a Uh piece once about, you know, uh, flossing. I used to. Think, I never used to floss my teeth. I always got lectured when I went to my dental appointment. The hygienist <laughs> would say, "John, John, you know, you didn't floss again." Yeah, I know. I'm busy. You know, there's no excuse. Well, then James Clear, you know, in his excellent articles on on productivity and 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 routines and habit loops and all that, and he talked about you know, just just have the floss right there next to your toothbrush and just floss two teeth. You just just one in the front, and one next to it tonight. That's yeah. it. That takes a sec. And then tomorrow night, maybe three. You know. Well, I actually. I started doing that from that article he wrote, and okay. next thing you know, I floss my teeth regularly. My dentist now sings, "John, your teeth are amazing." Uh, so, so you you do glean things from from good good writing and good self help, and um, but at the end of the day, though, you know, it, everyone's got to find their own path. It's going to be different for everybody. Everyone's path is different. Their realities are different. You know, a single mother who's trying to make it with her with her kid and working two jobs. Don't talk to her about, you know, um, living an artful life. Yeah. She's going to say, are you kidding me? You know, I, I'm, I'm just trying to survive right here and tread water. But yet there are opportunities even for her to have an artful life. Maybe she can't do everything she wants to do right now and maybe finally take that dance class she's always dreamed of doing. But you know what? She can dance with her kid at night um, to the music. Um, she can enjoy that cup of coffee in the morning and listen to the music that inspires her. She can carve time out on a vacation to maybe take that workshop on dance. She knows that kid of hers that she loves dearly, she's sacrificing for right now at this season of her life. But in another year or two, when the kid is older and going to school, she's gonna have maybe a little more free time to put into her dancing. So it is possible for anyone to live an artful life. I'm Srini Rao, and this
2: is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
3: Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be.
0: We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: John, welcome to the unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Serene, thanks so much for
1: having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I know about your work because I came across it on Medium where you tend to be regularly featured as one of the most popular writers, and for damn good reason. I think that, uh, as I was saying before we hit record here, I think that you bring a level of depth and thoughtfulness to uh, the writing that I've seen on a platform that is just littered with content that really does stand out and really strikes a chord and makes us think. So uh, you'd been on my list for a very long time to reach out to. But before we get into all of the work that you are currently doing, uh, I would like to start asking you: what is one of the most important things that you learn from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life?
1: Wow. well, first again, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, my dad taught me the importance of consistency and quality in work. Mm-hmm. My dad was an administrative law judge. He was a, uh, a bit of a polymath. He, he had a big library. He was well-read. Um, but all through my schooling, um, all, I had all private school education and then public school through high school. And he always talked to me about consistency, doing consistent work, that uh, you can stand out by doing a little bit more than the other person and doing quality work and he mm-hmm. always checked my homework and you know that really stayed with me my whole life he was that way he was very fastidious and thorough in his work and so i've tried to do the same yeah so as an
2: administrative law judge i i wonder you know i mean that's effectively like a white collar job. I wonder what advice did your parents give you growing up uh, about choosing a career path? And, you know, I, I'm curious, like, if I told my parents, you know, being Indian and having these sort of, you know, parents who basically raise overachieving kids that, hey, I want to, you know, join the police force, <laughs> they would be like, what? With your Berkeley degree, you're going to go into law enforcement or join the police force? So I wonder, you know, what,
1: especially having a dad who's a judge, what that conversation was like. So I'd like to say that my dad told me to follow my heart and be an artist and, and, and live the dream. But that's not what he told me. He told me to always have something to fall back on, something you could rely upon. Um, he was always supportive of my creativity and my desire to be an artist. But he also was supportive of me um, being pragmatic. So he supported me uh, in going to college and grad school. But I studied criminal justice uh, with the idea that I'd maybe become an attorney like my father. But I, got, I became interested in law enforcement. Uh, the adventure of it—it's uh, 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 a fascinating field—and and, uh, so I studied that, and went to college and grad school, and, and got a degree—a master's degree in criminal justice. And his advice was always had something to fall back on, uh, and mm-hmm. so his—it was good advice because really, had I chosen to be an artist, I don't know where I'd be today. Maybe I would have been successful. Maybe I would not have been. It's very difficult to make it uh, in the in the creative arts. Um, yeah. So what I did was something that he encouraged, which is sort of uh, pragmatic juggling. Mm-hmm. And I've written about that before. And what that means is uh, um, you can do both, but you have to be smart about it. So I got I got an education. I went into law enforcement, which turned out to be a great career for me. And I learned volumes, even though most people who met me couldn't believe I was a law enforcement. They thought I was a teaching or an artist. Yeah. Uh, but, but that career in law enforcement taught me discipline. It taught me how to deal with people. It taught me how to manage my time. It taught me how to help people in, in their times of need. I learned uh, mm-hmm. volumes about humanity. And all of that helped my art and made me a better artist, both my writing and my cartooning and painting. Yeah. Uh, Well,
2: it's funny. I like that idea of pragmatic juggling because I think my dad gave me the same piece of advice when I considered applying to the USC School of Music. I I got in and he didn't try to convince me to go to Berkeley, but he painted the reality of what I would be getting myself into. And he said, do you really want to spend the next four years in a practice room with a piece of metal? He said, because that's (laughs) what you're signing up for. And I, I wrote a piece about, uh, you know, how parents should talk to their kids about a career in the arts. And one woman actually was really upset because she said, I effectively gave parents license to discourage their kids. And I said, well, you know, I think that um, we shouldn't just paint a delusional reality for people because that's how they yeah, end up in situations that are irreversible.
1: That's true. That's very true. You, ha- you have to be pragmatic about it. It's, it's certainly possible to have a successful career in the arts, but, yeah. you know, you, you better be prepared for a lot of hard work and um, you have to be pragmatic about it. Mm-hmm. I, I always like to say and I've written about this before that nothing is wasted. Um, and what I mean by that is you know, the time we spend on projects or in work that may not be our passion still develops skills for us. I have so many skills from my law enforcement career in dealing with people and in management and administration that, that have helped me today in my, my my career now as a writer and an artist. And mm-hmm. so nothing is wasted. All the all the things I learned and get in public speaking as a police chief. Um, all the things I learned in articles I'd written for newspapers for the police department, all of that carried over to writing and to my artwork later on.
2: yeah. well, let's spend some time talking about uh, your career uh, in law enforcement. I mean, you mentioned that you uh, studied criminal justice, and right. we've had a lot of people here who we've had people from both sides of the fence. We've had Chris Voss who is an FBI hostage negotiator. We've also had a lot of people who have been incarcerated. And this is actually one of the big reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you was you know mm-hmm. when you, Look at sort of the criminal justice system as it exists today. Uh, having been on the other side, uh, not incarcerated, but somebody who was a police chief, and you see things like the the Central Park Five documentary that just came out. Um, I mean, right. what are your perceptions? Like, what misperceptions do you think that people have about law enforcement? And what, if anything, here needs to be corrected, like, so that we don't end up with these outcomes with like mass incarceration? Is there is there a way out of this cycle?
1: Right, it, that's a that's a broad and difficult question that people have been debating for a long time. The first thing I'd say is is that law enforcement has hundreds of thousands of contacts with people every day. I mean, in my town of Scotts Valley, California, where I was a, an officer and a police chief, and we contacted people every day, every day, on car stops, uh, difficult calls, domestic calls, um, including violent calls. And if you look statistically at how often law enforcement gets it right, it's really remarkable. I mean, for the hundreds of thousands of contacts every day that police officers, men and women in uniform make, um, is a very, very small percentage of time where things go wrong or there's a bad shooting or something like that. So I think sometimes what what gets all the attention, of course, in the media are the bad things. So uh, the the questionable shootings, bad behavior, those always are going to make the front page and be on the news. What you don't see are the hundreds of thousands of great contacts for officers that save people's lives, where they've helped people. and, and, and safely arrested them and got them the help they needed. We had officers in our department that uh, on their off time were buying blankets and, and, and food for homeless people in our town that we interacted with. Uh, we went out of our way to try to help people. And I wish that that story got told more instead of always a negative story. Now, mm-hmm. so the second part of your question, what, what can be done better? There's so many factors. Law enforcement keeps evolving in its training. The police academies are getting longer um, out of necessity. Because now there's so many factors. Diversity is taught in the police academy, uh, the Museum of Tolerance. We were taking officers down there in the academy um, to okay. get an experience on how internalized bias, sometimes we don't see it in ourselves. Um, we, we taught them extensively about how to deal with the mentally ill. Because let's face it, the homelessness, the mentally ill, um, addiction, all these things are, are problems. And law enforcement keeps having to evolve in its training. We focused on on how to de-escalate so that you didn't get to a point of a violent encounter, um, how to rely on numbers and, and better communication. Um, and, and and that's so important to, to try to resolve a, uh, a critical incident without somebody getting hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as in the community, the law enforcement can't solve all of society's problems. They, we get called when things go bad. When 911 rings, it's because something bad has happened. And then officers have a very short window of time to try to resolve a difficult problem um some of it is 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 going to be continue to be uh, recruitment um uh, mm-hmm. it's getting harder and harder to find good people that can pass a background to get in the law enforcement most people don't know what it takes to get in law enforcement the background some of it is societal it's it's it's, it's focusing on, on family and, and and illegitimacy and how to uh, um help families to thrive particularly families that are broken up and that have addiction problems so it is a broad social problem that that law enforcement alone isn't going to be able to solve
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I wonder, you know, when you see something, uh, I, I think, like you said, you know, we tend to, to hear a lot more about the negative stories. I mean, I think something like the Central Park Five is fresh on my mind because I saw the the documentary on Netflix or the the series uh, when they see us, and then when you hear about the work that people like, uh, you know, Brian Stevenson are doing at the Equal Justice Initiative, and, and you know, stories like Anthony Ray Hinton's from the mm-hmm. perspective of somebody who has worked in law enforcement. Uh, what is your view on those kinds of stories? And the other question I think is, what role does race play, um, in the way that society, uh, interacts with law enforcement?
1: Well, you know, in our town, we were mostly not a very diverse town in Scotts Valley, California. I think that's changing, but it just, it was predominantly sort of a white community. And so it, it, sometimes I cringe. Because uh, we would get phone calls sometimes from some of the older retired folks in town that would say, "Oh, there's 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 a black man uh, uh, on the corner near Safeway," and our dispatchers would say, "Yes," <laughs> 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 and, and you know they said, "Well, you know he's he's standing there and I don't, I don't recognize him and you know and maybe an officer could check and make sure you know and and w- we wouldn't get that often but you get that once in a while. And I remember yeah. we used to talk about that in the squad room and and, uh, and we would say, you know, where, where does that come from? Some of it, you know, this bias or this racism. Um, people from a different generation, or who, who live an insular life in a community where there's not a lot of diversity. Mm. And so, you know, that's difficult when you have a community. That we have some people that are like that. Um, as far as the officers go, and, and, and some of what you're seeing, the discussion from from the Central Park Five and, and the conversations about that, is, is race has become such a, is still such a polarizing issue in our country. and We're a very divided country right now. And one of the things we talked about in our department was that w- it was one of the edicts I had as a police chief was you need to treat everybody with basic human dignity. Uh-huh. Um, it was written into our, our um, service model. And we and we brought in people to teach on that for our officers um, because we and also in the community, we would meet people who witnesses sometimes who would have sort of this internalized bias. And, and we'd have to train our officers to look for that um, when they're questioning them, when you're questioning witnesses in order to get a fair and broad picture of what's really going on now sometimes we'd see the opposite we see people also uh, that would use race as a crutch we pull mm-hmm. somebody over on a car stop a, a person of color and they say the only reason you're stopping me is because of the color of my skin and say, oh, no sir it's, it's it's two o'clock in the morning i couldn't even see you in the car until i walked up to the windshield i, I stopped you because you were going 85 and a 55. Yeah. So, so so there's a balancing act of course it has to go on there but there is a disproportionate representation of people of color in, in, in prison. Um, mm-hmm. some on the right argue that, well, if you commit more of the crimes and the more of those people are going to be represented in prison. People on the left say no, there, there's, there's an implicit bias in our criminal justice system that needs to be, that needs to be fixed. And I think there's some truth in both of those mm-hmm. ends of the spectrum. Um, and, and that's going to be a problem that we're going to have to tackle in the years ahead. So, I mean, you studied criminal justice system, criminal justice, and I, I wonder, you know,
2: having talked to people who've been incarcerated who are, they seem like the outliers when they come out of the system and I get to talk to them here. They go out, they do really amazing things. And uh, I remember uh, with this guy, uh, you may have re- read his stuff on Medium. Uh, he, had, he had a piece called the, the Books That Saved My Life in Prison and yes. a really fascinating guy. Um, and we talked about this, and he, you know, one of the things that struck me was how difficult life is when you first get out. And how yep. difficult it is to get rehabilitated. He said, you know, in so many ways, prison becomes a much safer place for you to be than out in society because you have a roof over your head, you get a meal every day. Uh, whereas, you know, trying to to make it on the outside, you're literally given nothing. So, I, I wonder, do you think that the system rehabilitates the way it's intended to?
1: No, I, I I don't. I think they I think they try to. I know in our local jails in Santa Cruz County, they've made great strides to pursue education while people mm-hmm. are in jail and and uh, some people were in jail up, up to a year or longer yeah. and so they, they really focused on what kinds of skills and training they can provide them that are going to be useful but you know when, when they get out of prison you made a really good point in prison it, it, it's sort of a, a an insular society where where there's education if they want it there's counseling if they want it um that they don't you know so there is some opportunity there to be out of an unhealthy environment when they get out though what happens they get back with their friends again uh, it may be in the same environment they were in before, and it's nearly impossible to to climb out of an addiction or a problem. I wrote an article um, years ago, it's in my book, An Artful Life, uh, called The Prisoner, and it was a fictitious story about a guy in prison um, who hangs out in the library, and he ends up in the library of the prison sort of mentoring a young prisoner that comes into prison, and he talked to him about how he ended up in there because of a murder, and, and that his daughter won't talk to him anymore, but but... He's at peace with himself. He knows he made a mistake and he's forgiven himself. And now he reads the classics and he taught this young man all these lessons on life. And, um, and the man takes them out when he gets out of prison. Now, I got an email from a guy who had been in prison who said that he absolutely loved that article because it captured what prison life was like. The noise of prison, the, 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 the fear that goes on in prison, and also the friendships that are made there. And, 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 and it captured the reality of people you know, go to prison, are going to get out. And then what? And so criminal justice reform really has to look closely at corrections and what more we can do. There's some amazing people who go into the prisons and and counsel them, whether they're religious or whether they are there to teach them um, addiction or or, uh, how to deal with their addictions or how to deal with um, life on the outside again and getting work. And the more we can do on that, the the better, because let's face it, people are going to get out of prison. If we want to reduce recidivism rates, we have got to give them the tools to be successful when they get out. And that includes employers being willing to give someone a second chance. I had a pool guy where I live. I have a pool in my home. I'm blessed to have that. And and this guy had been in prison, and he was our pool guy for over a year. Uh, Great guy. And he did a great job for us. And he talked about how hard it was for him to to start his business because a lot of people didn't want to hire him. So Mm -hmm. it also takes people, you know, giving people a second chance. Yeah. So, you know,
2: on, on that note, uh, one thing that really struck me, we had a Sean Askenazi here, who was a, a chocolate maker, but a former criminal justice attorney, uh, a criminal defense lawyer. And he told me that people take plea bargains all day long, even though they're not guilty because they're so terrified of the potential okay. longer sentence. And, you know, part of it is you have this bail system. So when you see something from the law enforcement side, when you see that, wait a minute, we have for-profit prisons. Does that bother you in any way at all? Do you feel like there's any sort of ethical obligation to say, wait a minute, this is kind of screwed up?
1: Yeah, it, it does seem like, you, you know, the point of, of corrections is in the word corrections is to help somebody get their life straightened out and get back out and be a contributing member of society. It's not to be thrust into a a, a, a failing system where they're they're going to to criminal school, really. You know, where you hang out with other prisoners and you have to join a gang and just to survive and and you learn more about crime while you're in there and you come out sometimes worse than when you went in. There's a there's a problem with that that needs to be looked at. Uh, it seems to me that um, we need to figure out a way to make it. I'm not a corrections expert, of course. My my field was in law enforcement, but but uh, there's no question that uh, some of the people that came out of, of prison were worse. We had people in our local community that. You know, we, they got arrested for drug and, 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 and violent, uh, actions, uh, went to prison, came back out and, uh, we dealt with them more, you know, and then they went back and, and it's like a vicious cycle. So it seems to me that when we talk about prison reform, um, the profit model is something that needs to be looked at.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I know you, you alluded to the fact that you had all these various lessons that you learned from your career in law enforcement, and I kind of want to do a deeper dive into what some of those were. I mean, what did you learn about human relationships, leadership, and communication from your time in law enforcement that you have applied to your life going forward?
1: Well, the first thing I learned that was a little bit shocking to me as a young rookie was that everybody lies. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it crosses all socioeconomic barriers, race, gender, it, it, uh, sexual orientation. It doesn't matter. Everybody lies. You can watch somebody barrel right through a red light, as <laughs> pull them over, and they I didn't run through that red light. We had a guy one year that ran through a stop sign. I was a lieutenant then, and, and he wanted to come in and talk to the police chief. And he said, look, you know, um, I need to talk to the police chief. I, I did not run through that stop sign, and I think you guys need to do something with your corrupt police department. And so he came in and made an appointment with the police chief, and the chief had me sit in as a witness to listen to the conversation. And the guy sat down and he pushed the ticket very dramatically across the chief's desk and said, chief, look, this is ridiculous. I I didn't run through this stop. So I don't know why your officers are sandbagging people and writing these tickets, but this didn't happen. And what he didn't know was that the officers in our department wore recording devices. Um, They do to this day, just like this was before the cameras that officers wear, but it was just digital recorders. And on all car stops in our department, they would automatically turn on their digital recorder. And so there was a complete recording of the car stop. And The chief pulled out the recording and said, well, let's listen to the recording of the car stop that day. And the guy kind of sat back and his eyes got wide and he Mm -hmm. clicked it on and listened to his own voice admitting to the officer, yeah, officer, I'm sorry I ran through that stop sign back there, but I'm late to get to the airport. (laughs) And, you know, and the guy just, the guy just said, Bob, yeah, well, you know, and he had nothing to say, you know, and the chief just, just yelled at him and said, you know, how dare you come in here and lie to me? You know, and waste my time and and, and and lie about the officers just out there doing a the job because there's people in the neighborhood there who complaining about people running the stop sign. And they don't want their kids to get hit. And mm-hmm. and so, everybody lies. And like I said, I, I've had people in, you know, Rolls Royce's line. I've had, I had people in you know, beat up motorcycles that look like they're on their last dollar lie to me. So, that was the first thing. As far as communication goes, one of the biggest things I learned was the absolute importance of listening. And this is a very important thing for police officers that sometimes you can forget going through your day from call to call to call because it's a difficult job. But I learned that if you slow down and really listen to people, that's so valuable. Number one, because they feel validated that you're listening to their story. And that's half of it. When someone's angry or upset or they're a victim or a witness or a suspect, they want to tell their story. They want to defend themselves or tell their side of things. And it's so important for officers to have that ability to listen. I would get down on one knee sometimes and I'd have people sitting in our lobby so that I could meet them at eye level, so that one, they weren't intimidated by me and being you know guy in a uniform standing over them, and so that I could listen to them. Sometimes when people would come into the lobby of the police department, I, instead of meeting with them in my office if they had a complaint or a concern, I'd tell them, look, you want you wanna take a walk around the police department? We had a little park right next to the police department, and I would go outside and sit down on the picnic bench with them and talk to them there. So, you know, the environment where you talk to somebody matters a great deal. Um, so listening, as far as communication goes, is important. And and then as far as communication and speaking to people, I found that um, brevity is a great thing. You know, when you're giving speeches, mm-hmm. if you can get to the point, that's important. As far as leadership goes, um, what I learned is that people judge you more by how you behave than what you say. Yeah. And God knows in Washington um, <laughs> nowadays you know, <laughs> actions speak louder than words. You know, we see that uh, on both sides of the political spectrum. Yeah. But I learned in my, my job as police chief early on, uh, I had to be in at eight o'clock in the morning as chief and I'd usually get done to work around five or six on a good day. Um, but after about a year, at the first year of being police chief, I realized that, you know, if I really wanted to lead by example, then I needed to be more visible with the troops. I couldn't, I come in, you know, I wore a suit because once you're a police chief, you spend more time going to county meetings and and, and city council meetings, and budgets, and all that kind of thing. So you're rarely in a uniform. But I changed things up, and I started wearing my uniform more. I came in at seven in the morning, so I catch the morning roll call, the morning shift officers that are that are coming on, and this, this, the, the graveyard shift officers that were coming off. And I'd sit through the roll call and visit with the guys and gals and laugh and talk to them. And, and that's a big part of leadership, I think, is is just being visible, not coming down the hall when you have a problem, or you need to call an officer in over an issue. But just being visible and hearing their stories and talking to them about what their kids are doing and their wives and their husbands. And, and um, so leadership to me is, is about walking it. It's, it's about being out there, being visible and, and not being afraid to roll up your sleeves and do the same job everyone else was doing. I used to go out and, you know, handle calls with officers and help direct traffic and try to be as, as available as I could to them because it's so important. I think anyone in, in any career today, they need to, walk the walk and it's not about talking it's about showing everybody that you can uh, do the same job and you can and be there for them
2: yeah well it's funny you alluded to to washington and this whole idea of action speaking louder than words i don't know if you saw it, john stewart actually uh, sat in front of congress uh i think it was either yesterday or the day before oh god it thought. was it was
1: beautiful it and, was. and with this nine eleven, 11 nine eleven 9 11 people that were suffering and he says yeah. they're all here where are you and there's just empty empty congress right mm-hmm. there's, there's, yeah. there's hardly anybody there that that said volumes and and i thought that was wonderful that he did that because they promised these people that that worked so hard in nine eleven to save people's lives and and there's still people dying today from illnesses born from back then yeah. and and kudos to Stuart for coming in there and and standing with them and um, and and making sure that their voices were heard and they get the support that they deserve.
2: Yeah. I I, you know, I I remember I think the thing that struck me most when that was happening, I was watching it last night and he said they responded in five minutes and Congress has
1: had 15 years. (laughs) Right. I
2: mean, I I think regardless of what side of the aisle they were on, he made a valid point. And I, I remember thinking that was the most impactful thing I'd seen all week.
1: Yeah, I I saw that too. And I was moved by that and thought, and and you looked at some of the people that he was with and and you just, your heart ached for them because Lord knows what they've gone through. Speaking of which, I think that
2: makes uh, one last sort of uh, question about law enforcement. I think that, you know, what happens when, you know, you see tragedies, when you see things like, what does that do for you as somebody who's in law enforcement? Like, what do we not see that are the painful sides of this from both sides? Because I'm guessing you've probably seen people from both sides who've lost their lives, right? Right.
1: Oh absolutely. Yeah, uh, you know, that's the of course I'm I'm always sympathetic to the men and women in law enforcement. Yes, mistakes are made, but I'm always sympathetic because I know how difficult the job is. I was blessed to work in a town that was a fairly low crime town, so we didn't see a lot of consistent violent crime. Um but we had our fair share uh of murders and and suicides. I can't tell you how many suicides I've been to and and traffic accidents where where people were were dying in front of you as you're trying to help them. And what I think society doesn't see, unless you are married to a police officer or you are a police officer, is the toll that takes on police officers emotionally. Um, PTSD is very real in law enforcement. Um, I have friends in my career that I still know today that are retired now, and they still carry with them the faces of the dying and the, the tragedies that they had to deal with. Um, a former police chief that I work with um, still I remember the story he told of having to go and tell... Um, um, children that their mother and father were killed in, mo- in, a, in an accident oh. uh, you know knocking on the door and and, and just the whole uh, tragedy of he's never forgotten their faces i remember the guy that committed suicide in his his friend's house while his friend was gone and another partner and i got there and he was still alive laying in bed um and he was um talking to us and and, and he was saying, yeah i'm so sorry i messed up the room and he shot himself in the chest and he hadn't passed away and and we had this conversation with him and he says, I just, just couldn't bear it anymore. And, and like, like we're having like over coffee and he's just having this casual conversation with us. And the ambulance came, took him to the hospital and he died on the operating table. And, and I can still to this day remember his, his voice or a young woman who was addicted to cocaine who was very successful and she and her boyfriend overdosed on cocaine. And when we got there, uh, we, we, we stabilized her and got medical help there and a pretty young gal and, and very bright. In, she was in high tech in our community, and mm-hmm. we talked to her in the hospital room and told her, look, you need to get help. You, you can get over this. And, and a month later, we were back at her house, and her eyes were rolled back, and she was in convulsions on the floor of her living room, and she passed. And um, you remember every one of these stories in law enforcement. Um, you never forget them. The children you deal with who have abusive parents, the addicted homeless individuals you try to help for years, and finally you find them one day in the woods and their tent passed away— And you're, you know, PTSD is is an emotional injury and you never, uh, you never fully recover from it, but you learn how to carry it. Yeah.
3: Wow. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy to use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more and grow your business all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing.
4: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/slash-wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost
1: fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
4: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition?
2: Well, let's do this. Uh, Let's shift gears into something a little bit more lighthearted, uh, which is the work that you have done uh, as an artist and a writer. Uh, You know, so I think that this is, you know, I was kind of going through, you know, some of the stuff that you were written on Medium this morning, and there's something you said that really, I think, makes such a perfect transition to talking about this whole idea of your work as a creator. You said, as we age, we lose a great deal of our childhood innocence. Our curiosity and imagination succumb to adolescence, hormones, and the complexities of adulthood. We become concerned about our appearance, popularity, and success. We compete in the workplace and learn that communication involves what we say versus what we really mean. We worry about right. things like status and social rank. So in the midst of, of that sort of uh, issue that we're all dealing with, how in the world did you manage not to lose this innocence, maintain this curiosity, and, and sort of make this transition uh, into you know what I think is a multi-hyphenate career?
1: I guess I did that because my art and creativity was my safe place. It was my passion. When I wasn't working in law enforcement, I was painting at an easel, or I was writing, or I was drawing cartoons. Uh, I drew cartoons actually my whole career in the police department on on the grease board and all kinds of funny cartoons of officers doing silly things. And it was a great pressure valve release for all of us emotionally to be able to laugh at ourselves and laugh at some of the crazy stuff that happens. Um, and, and so really art for me, Art was, was how I managed to keep saying, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, I mean, er, er, somewhere in mid career, I, I, I decided I wanted to learn landscape painting. And so I went off to Idaho. My wife, God bless her. I wasn't, I was, I hate, hated to fly. I was a fearful flyer and I didn't want to fly to Idaho. And she talked me into it and said, this is ridiculous. You're going to get on that plane and you're going to, you know, you're going to learn more about painting. And I, and I was uh, an admirer of the artist Scott L. Christensen. who's a fantastic landscape painter. And I went off and studied with him. And, you know, being in Idaho out there in the cottonwoods and the breeze and being in this man's studio and seeing his beautiful artwork and listening to beautiful music while we painted was such another world from law enforcement and and seeing the worst sides of society. And it showed me that beauty and art and creativity are vitally important to our health. And the landscape painting was an escape for me. And also the writing was an escape. Some of the awful things I mentioned earlier about my mm-hmm. law enforcement career that I witnessed. Well, that also you know, affects you emotionally, but you can channel those emotions into poignant writing and poignant um, essays about life. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, I, I feel lucky that instead of injuring me and making me uh, bitter about society and cynical, some of the awful things I saw seemed to in a way softened my heart and made, made me feel more for people. And I've tried to put that into my writing now, too, and try to encourage people in my writing because I've seen so much ugliness I don't want people to suffer and God knows if I can take my experience and my silly cartoons and writing and, and try to help people live a better life, more artful life then then that that's a good thing, and it makes me feel better about my life
2: well I think that to me you know what you just said is is really in a lot of ways also exemplary of one of the challenges that we live in the that we have with the world that we live in today because i remember you had a piece and i don't remember what it was titled it was about the fact that social media success is a byproduct not the actual right. success or something along those lines i know because exactly. i quoted that exact quote in one of my articles <laughs> and i remember thinking about that and you know i think you're exemplary of the, the fact that you were doing this thing solely for its own sake whereas now we live in this world where you know i wrote an entire book about this called audience of one But really, there is this sort of mindset of if this doesn't reach a million people or I can't make myself famous from it, it's not worth doing. Uh, And I think that's so tragic. But one of the things you said is that you may not think your artwork and creative expression matters, but you'd be mistaken. Maybe you're a weekend watercolorist or a part-time poet. Perhaps you write music or short stories. Despite working commitments of life, you squeeze in time for your art. And that piece in particular struck me because I think you made a very strong case for the value of art and why it's not just about being famous. And I was wondering if you could uh, kind of expand on that. It's particularly, I think that it's funny because I think sometimes you know, people will look at somebody like me. I had somebody who once told me, yeah, you're making this argument from a place of privilege. You're a damn published author. Right,
1: right. And
2: I, <laughs> you know what? And she wasn't wrong entirely. Sure. Uh, you know, sure. So, that, so how do you, you just sort of dance between the tension of those two things?
1: Well, yeah, that's true. You know, you, you have to please your own heart first. And I've made those mistakes when I first started blogging. I think when I first started blogging years ago, um, I think I read Michael Hyatt's book on the uh, platform, how to get discovered mm-hmm. in a noisy world or, you know, and, and so then what I was, what I do at first, I, I was blogging on my little art website and I started aping, you know, like Michael Hyatt posts, you know, you know, how to live a better life and, you know, just <laughs> with three, you know, click on these three ways, you know, and, yeah. and, and I was using unsplash, you know, stock photos to go with my, my posts. And I was, you know, I was learning. I was practicing in public and, and, and it didn't take long before I realized that this isn't, this isn't pleasing me, really. You know, I'm just copying somebody else. I'm not mm-hmm. being authentic. I was looking at numbers, analytics, trying, and I was the, most, the biggest techno dummy there was. I mean, I did not understand how to use a lot of this stuff, in Google Analytics. And, and to this day, I really don't pay much attention to that stuff at all. I mean, I mm-hmm. have some analytics on my site. I hardly ever look at it. Because what I finally found out was is that I really have to please myself first. I went down to Tennessee and took a a, a workshop with Jeff Goines and learned a lot from him about, about blogging and he brought in some great people and uh, but at the end of the day, what I learned is you know you really have to start with yourself what what do you want to say you have to please your own heart um, and so I started changing my writing I started writing more creatively and I also stopped using the stock photos and I started using my own cartoons because I love uh-huh. to draw cartoons and yeah. and uh, I wanted to be authentic and, and and i and initially you know um it was crickets, not a lot of comments, but I learned as I went along, um, I, and I learned something you, you do have to learn, like the woman or the person that complained to you about how, well, you're writing from a place of privilege. Well, there's some truth to that, but you also did the hard work to get there. You have to get up every morning and write. You have to learn from your mistakes. I mean, I read a lot of very bad blog posts, and yeah. I learned from them. I hired a guy to teach me copywriting to learn how to write more compelling headlines, but not make them clickbait. You know, Mm -hmm. I I had to practice how to write better, how to use better subheadings, how to write more compellingly. Um, And I had to make sure that it was my own voice and not just copying somebody else. And that's really when things, I think, uh, changed for me, where where my writing started getting noticed a little bit more. And and, and Medium's been a great platform because I'm able to share my work. But you've got to be honest with your work. You can't just write stuff that you think people want to hear. You have to write stuff that really you want to say. And when I started being more authentic and drawing my own cartoons um, and speaking honestly, that's when I noticed that in being consistent about it, that's when I noticed that the the writing seemed to be getting more attention. I'm very fortunate for that.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'll tell you that that was the thing that caught my attention, my attention about your work was the drawings, because as somebody who has an incredibly visual brand, it was one of those things that was yeah. really inspiring to me. I thought, oh, this is cool. Uh, sure. And it's funny you mentioned <laughs> the Unsplash thing where what I, you know, I, I realized very quickly that I can't draw, but we have a you know, really cool design firm that does unlimited graphic design. And so I was like, OK, they're like, give us your sources of inspiration and tell us what you want us to create anything you can describe create it. I was like, well, check out this guy, John Weiss, like this is the stuff he's created <laughs> (laughs) This is another person. I was like, don't copy it to the letter. Just, you know, here's some inspiration. Uh, because I, you know, I kind of was like, okay, wait a minute. I can replace all the stock photos on our site with that. And that's what I'm planning (laughs) to do. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was that, that without a doubt was what really struck me. One thing that you said actually in a recent piece, and I was wondering if you could expand on this is the importance. You talked about the importance of practice and patience, um, I think that, like I said, I think the thing that has always struck me so much about your work is that it's clear that a lot of thought depth and real deep work goes into it. It's not about seeking attention, but about really kind of, you're, you're really somebody who's clearly committed to your craft, both as an artist, a uh, visual artist, and as a writer. So I, I wonder if you talk to us about your process for um, sure. both practice, patience, and, and sort of how you start to think about, you know, creating the work that you do.
1: Sure. Well, yeah, you know, I've written before in a piece, I forget which one, um, where I talked about rare and valuable. How If you want to be successful, you really have to develop skill sets that are rare and valuable, which is hard. But the reality is there's millions of people blogging, writing, doing artwork. So in order to stand out, you really have to put a lot of time and energy into creating quality work and authentic work. So for me, it began with um, I've always been drawing since I was a kid. I was a doodler and a do cartoons. I, I, did editorial cartoons in college and grad school. And, and I, I did cartoons for two newspapers. So those were years and years of practice just by publishing cartoons, political cartoons and newspapers. Uh, but even, uh, after that, during all that time, I was always drawing. I, I, would spend time, uh, copying, uh, works of other artists to learn how they, how they solve problems. Um, I I copied and and I practiced. I would look at images and and draw them. Um, And I developed this style of cartooning that's basically an old school um, cross-hatching detailed cartoons. You don't see much of that today. You see more uh, um, digitally drawn artwork that is usually simpler and colored in. And, And I try to make my cartoons stand out by being very detailed. So my process is, you know, I get up early. I have two dogs that insist on an early morning walk. And since I live right here in in Las Vegas, it gets hot, so I have to get up early. So I get up early and exercise, get the dogs, walk, get my coffee, and I'm in my studio. And I'll spend some time in the morning um, doing a lot of drawing. I do a lot of cartooning just to draw cartoons, to to learn new things. Um, I draw both traditionally on paper, pen and ink, and watercolor. But I also draw my iPad Pro with Procreate. Which mm-hmm. really became um, absolutely nece- a necessity for me in order to create regularly. Because in order for me to do a piece on Medium, let's say, or my blog, you know, it, it takes me a few hours to not just to write the piece. Well, it'd be so much easier just to write the article and then just throw on a yeah. you know a, a you know a photo and be done. It's the artwork then that takes time, and so I'll sit down and and, and draw for a few hours um, and 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 put those cartoons into my my articles. Um, so my my process though is getting up early every day um, mm. and, and doing cartooning. Um, I usually take the afternoon or evening to do my reading. I like to read uh, everywhere I go. I usually bring something with me to read. Um, I keep a in skinny notebook with me, so when I go out, if I'm in coffee shops, I like to doodle people. If I'm in airports, I I draw people because you know there's, there's the best way to get authenticity into your cartoons and your artwork is is from real life. I love to draw and paint from my imagination as well, but Real life is really where it's at. You talk to you know landscape painters and all they'll tell you to take a class and gesture and you know paint people and draw. And the more I draw from life, the more that um, I, I, I seem to get better. There's a cartoonist I really like named Thomas Fluharty, and he does these fantastic sort of cartoons of people. He's he's big time illustrator. He's done work for Time and all the major publications, but he does these just beautifully drawn, detailed work. And if you look at his website or his Instagram. He's drawing all the time. He's drawing everyday cartoons and, and he's practicing constantly. And I think whether you're a, a musician, whether you're a writer, whether you are a cartoonist, a potter, it doesn't matter what your creative passion is, you've got to discipline yourself to do it every day. You've got to make time for to practice. A lot of people want to do finished work every day. They want to do finished paintings <laughs> yeah. and drawings. And the problem that's fun and that's satisfying, you know, but it's the it's the practice that makes shit better.
2: hmm Yeah. With this, I mean, you seem to me like somebody who abides very much by the Cal Newport deep work philosophy. Uh, I wonder what your views on social media are.
1: So I have a love-hate relationship with social media. Uh, I'm a big (laughs) fan. I'm a big fan of Cal Newport. Uh, I loved his, uh, not only his deep work, but his book, Digital Minimalism. Um, God, I've deleted my Facebook page. I've brought it back. I've, you know, I've, I've gone to all black and black and white on my website and try to simplify it and went color. Oh my gosh. You know, I, I, right now I, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Um, so here's what I think about. I, I, there's so much social media that is absolute waste of time there's so many fantastic books that are languishing in bookstores and libraries and never get read because people are too busy watching insipid cat videos and and god knows what else or they're fretting over their analytics on their blog or instead of putting time into educating their minds with with good books um and with um um with with great artwork in museums so I have a love-hate relationship with social media. The bad about it is that you have young people that are trying to compete with what they see online and and they think they're failures if they don't have lots of followers or if they're not beautiful or perfect. But there's also some good with social media. Some of the good is some of the artists and writers I've discovered I never would have found if it had not been for Mm -hmm. social media. There's a painter I really love, Jeremy Mann who is another person who hates social media. He has hit over 6,000 followers on Instagram and he just left Instagram and doesn't post there anymore. So he's just, he's yeah. sick of having to post all the time. He's just come to his website if you want to see him. So he's going to lose followers by doing that. But I admire the fact that he's trying to put his energy into his art and not social media. But I have to say that, you know, I make time for some social media. I, I, I plan in the mornings and evenings. I, I'm not a slave to it. But I'll tell you, you know, I found some great podcasts. Um, I found some great um, blogs. It inspired me to some very bright people out there. And the reality is, if you're a creator and you want to build an audience, you kind of need to get out there and be on some of these, um, you know, social media platforms in order to share your work to get noticed.
2: Yeah. I think that the the funny thing is that people put, I think, way more effort on the sharing and getting noticed than they do the work part.
1: Yeah. I think you just summed up what I said in the last 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. You know, it's so true, uh, Serini, The people would be further along probably in their work and get more noticed if they improve the quality. I see so many wonderful people on their art websites that, you know, I get emails from so many people and they're all fascinating and, and they're all at different stages of their creative development. Um, but, you know, there's some who they put up websites and, and I look at the artwork and, and they're still in the early stages of their development and they're frustrated because they're not getting noticed. You know, they're doing the same red barn in the, you know, painting that everyone else has seen and, and they haven't really found their own voice yet. Um, I think my work improved when I slowed down. I was, I was trying to write lots of posts and, and I was pushing out lots of, uh, I have an email list and I was pushing out lots of email. I started getting unsubscribes and they're like, yeah, I like your work, but my God, every day, buddy, come on. And so I started realizing that, you know, it's not about quantity. It truly is about quality, you know, and also remembering to finish. Mm-hmm. Something when you start it. I mean, a lot of people, they start stuff and they never finish, or they start a blog and then they never follow through. I just finished Neil Gaiman's wonderful um, masterclass on writing. And okay. one of the things he said is, you learn more from finishing a failure than from starting something fantastic. <laughs> wow. And it's, it's true. You know, I mean, I think of all the great paintings I started that I never finished, and then some of the crappy ones that I did that no one's ever going to see. But you know what? I learned so many things from those failures every failed blog post that got crickets and two likes, you know, mm-hmm. I learned something from what I did wrong. Um, yeah. and I think if people spend more time reaching out to not their mom and, you know, their, or their best friends to ask, how do you like this piece of work, but mm-hmm. strangers and to get critiques and to do the work and be consistent. And you know, that's how you do better work and you mm-hmm. got to compare it against people you admire and ask yourself, is, is this written piece as good as a uh, you know, as Cal Newport's blog post, or is this painting as good as Scott Christian's? If it's not, then, then figure out where you can improve. So okay. you're right. You know, it's more about quality than quantity.
2: Yeah, it's funny because I, you know, I, I decided to follow Seth Godin's advice of publish a blog post every day, but they're like small blog posts, you know, I do right, like right. These little riffs, but then I do, you know, deeper pieces yeah, at least twice a week. And those take time without a doubt. Those, you know, exactly. I, know how, okay, I can do maybe two of these a week, uh, which I, I think the, the funny thing is we have this idea that if we're prolific, we have to share everything that we create. And they're like, no, no, that's not the point the point is to be prolific because I I realize that you can overcome so many of your inadequacies and deficiencies and weaknesses just by being prolific.
1: That's true. And a lot of people do that. And and social media, it seems to uh, breed that in people where they they feel like they have to post constantly, you know, they're going to be forgotten and ignored. And, It's sad in the way I've written about this before two people go on vacations and they have to document every aspect of their vacation Uh on Instagram, you know, and then they curate the best pieces of their lives and put it up on Facebook and they don't show the mortgage that didn't get paid or the late payments (laughs) or, or the problems in their relationship. They only show the best stuff. And then the rest of us see the best stuff and think, oh my God, my life sucks because, you know, they look at how they're living their life and that's not real life. And Mm -hmm. it seems to me that, you know, instead of trying to post every minute, I went through that too. I tried to post more and then I slowed down. I've slowed down to a trickle now on Instagram because I'm trying to create new work. I'm trying to develop my paintings into something more unique and, and, and different than what I've done in the past. And that takes time. And I don't want to just put stuff out there. So I, it it all takes time, but I think again, it's, it's, you know, I have a, I have a little plaque in my studio that says there are no shortcuts to any place worth going. Uh. And, um, it's true. You know, if you, if, the people that are, that are really doing well put a lot of time and hard work into where they're, where they are today. And people don't always know their backstory of how long it took them to get there. They just okay. see the big numbers on social media or the books that they're doing. And they think, I want to be like that person. Yeah. But, you know, there, there's, there's a, there's a backstory to that. And usually it's consistency, hard work, learning from your failures and, uh, you know, doing quality work.
2: Well, I think that we really love the idea of some sort of formula for success. And I, <laughs> of course, I say, look like in every formula, there's one blatantly obvious variable that completely throws off the formula and that's you. Otherwise, everybody who took an online course would be getting the exact same results. And exactly. it's so often we overlook that because somebody told me that there's really no template to living a remarkable life. And I, I loved that. I thought that was that's one beautiful. of the most intelligent things I'd ever heard uh, on the beautiful. podcast. Uh so speaking of, of a remarkable life, I mean you earlier alluded to this idea of an artful life. And I think, you know, one of the things that I see that is woven throughout your writing is this very sort of philosophical worldview. Uh and I'm wondering, you know, how would you describe that and how do you measure your life?
1: So, you know, when I was down in Tennessee at the Frothy Monkey Cafe, which is a great little coffee place down there in Tennessee, um, Taking that workshop with Jeff Goins, one of the things he he asked his students to do was to kind of write out what what your work is about, you know. And 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 typically, what you hear most um, bloggers are told to do is to solve problems, right? Yeah. You, 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 that's how you help other people by solving problems. I had a hell of a time trying to come up with what the heck I'm about. You know, I'm I'm a cartoonist and I'm a painter and I'm a writer, and I, I really I was having a difficult time defining w- what that was. And then I finally realized that really what I'm about is living an artful life, Um, not only for myself but encouraging that in others, to live an artful life. And and that doesn't mean being an artist per se, but that means learning to live life a little more elegantly, learning to slow down, learning to really embrace your passions, to stop beating up on yourself and trying to compare yourself all the time to other people. An artful life is is embracing the joy of your family and your friends, and, and good coffee and meals and travel. And, and uh, not being so hard on yourself, but in embracing life and the beauty of life. And so you see me writing a lot about, uh, you know, how great it is to get outdoors, um, not to, com- to compare yourself. You know, what is it? Uh, comparison is a thief of joy, I think mm-hmm. was uh, Theodore Roosevelt said that. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. And that social media kills us because we're always comparing ourselves to others and then we feel bad. But I think living an artful life is is learning to slow down and to embrace Embrace your passions more, and that's what I write about, and, and that's what I'm trying to encourage other people to do. That's sort of my worldview, yeah. um, and it serves me well. It doesn't mean it's easy. We all have, um, like I said about pragmatic juggling, we all have sometimes day jobs we're not crazy about, or you know I get that. We everybody has to work to make a living. You can't just run off and discover yourself, and then your kids are starving and there's no money for the mortgage. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you ha- you have to be realistic. But I, I, it is entirely possible for anyone out there to improve their lives. And I think. Some of the keystones to that are health. I'm Uh a big believer. You don't have to be a total health nut and go join CrossFit and do a triathlon. But I do think that, um, boy, you know, my work improved when I started focusing more on my health, on on regular exercise and trying to eat better, getting Mm -hmm. enough sleep. Nothing's new in the self-help, personal development world. These are things that Benjamin Franklin was talking about, you know, early early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. you know... It, it's just that everyone's different in, in, in how they learn it. The good thing yeah. about about self-help and personal development is that sometimes, you know, people read all this stuff, but something finally clicks. I mean, yeah. there's some things I've read before, but, you know, suddenly I read something, James Clear, of all people, wrote yeah. a piece once about, you know, uh, flossing. I used to think, I never used to floss my teeth. I always got lectured when I went to my dental appointment. And the hygienist <laughs> would say, John, John, you know, you didn't floss again. Yeah, I know, I'm busy. You know, there's no excuse. Well, then James Clear, you know, in his excellent articles on on productivity and and, and routines and habit loops and all that, and he talked about you know, just just have the floss right there next to your toothbrush and just floss two teeth. You just just one in the front, and one next to it tonight. That's yeah. it. That takes a sec. And then tomorrow night, maybe three. You know. Well, I actually I started doing that from that article he wrote, and uh-huh. next thing you know, I floss my teeth regularly. My dentist now sings, "John, your teeth are amazing." Uh, so, so you, you do glean things from, from good, good writing and good self-help. And, um, but at the end of the day though, you know, it, everyone's got to find their own path. It's going to be different for everybody. Everyone's path is different. Their realities are different. You know, a single mother who's trying to make it with her, with her kid and working two jobs. Don't talk to her about, you know, um, living an artful life. Yeah. She's going to say, are you kidding me? You know, i, I I'm just trying to survive right here and tread water. But yet there are opportunities even for her to have an artful life. Maybe she can't do everything she wants to do right now and maybe finally take that dance class she's always dreamed of doing. But you know what? She can dance with her kid at night um, to the music. Um, She can enjoy that cup of coffee in the morning and listen to the music that inspires her. She can carve time out on a vacation to maybe take that workshop on dance. She knows that kid of hers that she loves dearly she's sacrificing for right now at this season of her life. But in another year or two, when the kid is older and going to school, she's going to have maybe a little more free time to mm-hmm. put into her dancing. So yeah. it is possible for anyone to live an artful life. You think of Viktor Frankl, who's suffered, you know, a man's search for meaning and the concentration camp. And, you know, he argued about how they can do so many things to you, but you get to decide how you want to react to those things. Uh-huh. Um, and there's so much truth to that. I mean, in our daily lives, we get to decide how much art we want to have in our lives.
2: I love that. I, I mean, th- that's going to be the title of the interview and I'm probably going to steal it and write it as a blog post. If you haven't already, <laughs> uh, I hope you do just, I, you know, I think that you make such a case for, for, you know, the value of creativity for its own sake. I, I wonder, do you have
1: kids? I do. I have a 21 year old son who I just love him to death. And he's a remarkable young man. He's an artist as well. Uh-huh. He's studying computer science. He's an air force reservist. Um he's, 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 he's got the perfect blend of he's both got technical skills and, and amazing artistic skills um and he's just a a pleasure he, his artwork is is amazing um he's he's a better artist than i was at his age that's for sure and i'm uh, yeah. very proud of him
2: but the reason i asked that was that you know we've talked about sort of pragmatic juggling and all that we have a lot of parents who listen to this show and i wonder what advice you gave your own children about living a art an artful life, and what advice you would give to parents who are listening about encouraging an artful life in their children?
1: I always encouraged my son's art. Um, I'd sit down with him. Um, I tried to create an environment for him that made um, it easier. I really have to credit my wife though, because my wife is the one who did all kinds of amazing things for him. She took she took the TV out of his bedroom and she put bookcases in and got all these classic books for him and got him reading. Everything, you know, the hitchhiker's guide to the <laughs> galaxy and all these great books, um, that inspired him when he was young. My advice to parents is I think it's so important that you, you nurture your children's artistic and creative instincts. It's easy sometimes for parents to want to try to shape their kids into what they think they want to be. You know, maybe you got a dad who's a huge sports fan. He wants his kid to be, you know, the next baseball superstar. So the poor kids are being dragged off to baseball games every weekend. Really, all the kid wants to do is draw cartoons, Mm -hmm. you know, or you know, or the mother who's 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 the 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 helicopter mom who's trying to put her daughter in ballet, you know, and painting classes and all that, and you know, but really, her daughter really is into skateboarding, you know, and wants to you know go out there and skateboard. So I think parents really have to look at what the aptitudes are of their children and and help them to support them to pursue that because you know you hear so many times about. Kids who grow up and their parents directed them away from their passions. And then, you know, they end up later in life regretting that they didn't pursue them more. You right. know, I mentioned earlier my dad and, and God bless him. You know, I, I think I'm thankful that he directed me as far as having a pragmatic career to fall back on. Um, and it worked out for me. And he and thank God he was supportive of my art, though too. If he had poo pooed that and said, no, I don't want you doing do an artwork. You got to focus on this. I would have been very unhappy. But, you know, even with all of that, I, as I enjoyed my career in, in police work, I still always had my artwork with me because it was supported in my family. And, you know, then later on when I retired, retired early because I just couldn't wait any longer, I finally had to dive into my art and I was able to do it. So I say for parents, you know, nurture that creative instinct in your kids. Um, if Take them to places and get them involved in things that are going to help them to develop that creativity. Because that's a gift that lasts a lifetime. You know, I mean, one of the things that I'm lucky about is I'm never bored. I, I could be at an airport and start sketching. I can go on a vacation and, and, you know, if I have downtime in a dentist office, I can start drawing cartoons. It's a gift that keeps on giving and whatever the creative gift is that a child has, a parent really has to encourage that so that they can have that their whole lives.
2: Yeah. So I'm going to steal an Oprah question. What is the lesson that's has taken you the longest to learn?
1: The lesson that's taking me the longest to learn. Um probably patience um i think i've always been a bit of a um, obsessive compulsive and i'm impatient Uh, and i it's taken me a long time to learn to let go of impatience and let things unfold in their own time we we, we live in such a frenetic society now with instant information and and we're so accustomed to everything being immediate whether it's uh, immediate gratification online or television or, or get you know Planes, you know, we we just we just take it for granted that planes take off the land and land. You across the country in four hours, no problem, <laughs> you know. And 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 in a the minute, there's there's an, an upset. You know, the power goes off and there's no Wi-Fi in Starbucks or the yeah. plane's delayed because of bad weather. I mean, come on, you're sitting in, the, in, a, in a basically a lazy boy in a tube traveling 500 miles an hour you know, sipping a, a Coke across the country, and you're complaining that it's taking you a while to get to where you want to go. It's insane. I yeah. mean, think of the technology of the day we have, we're so blessed to have what we have. So I think for me, um, it's learning patience. And, and for me, it's learning to take a deep breath to slow down. Don't be in such a rush, you know, you're oh, the blogs not taking off or you know, the artwork's not where I want it to be. Okay, slow down, put in the time. And it'll happen in its own time. Um, the more we rush, the more we seem to miss some of the best pieces of life.
2: Yeah.
1: Some of the best conversations I've had in coffee shops have been because I slowed down and closed my MacBook and actually had a conversation with a woman next to me and learned about her husband that just passed away and what an amazing life they had together and lessons she had for me about relationships and about making time for your spouse. And I mean, you know, I'm still learning these lessons. <laughs> my wife will probably tell you. Yes. But, um so that's it, I think, for me, is patience. Learning so need to be more patient in life. Yeah, it's funny
2: you mentioned the airplane because we had a guest here named Sasha Hines. She said, you know, if you'd talk to Lewis and Clark and told them they could get a <laughs> car in four hours, they would be like, holy shit. Right? Anyway. I know, we're so spoiled. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Two final questions for okay. you. Uh, sure. What is one book that has changed your life?
1: Oh, gosh. You know, I mentioned Victor Frankl earlier, Man's Search for Meaning, but I was really moved when I read that book by about... You know, I get to decide how I want to react to things in life. I mean, if he can if he can try to improve the lives of people in a concentration camp, um, wow, you know, then why am I complaining about my life or when things don't work out perfectly for my life? Mm-hmm. So that book really um moved me a lot. You know, I just reread Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea. Again, I hadn't read that in a while. And Santiago, and he's out there in that ocean fighting with that marlin. <laughs> You know, and and I remember even when the first time when I read that about about life and the struggles we have in life and and trying to overcome them and 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 about the simple pleasures in life and and how that the young man that helps Santiago and the old man in the sea and when he finally makes it back to to land and and loses most of the marlin, gets eaten by sharks and you know, this young boy an old man's dying, you know, but the young boy Rushes to get him coffee with milk and the simple pleasures of getting them back at home and into his bed and and that book just always struck me as reminding me about the simple pleasures of life and you know if a simple fisherman in Cuba can get such pleasure out of his fishing and and uh, and if people can take such good care of you like the young young man did to Santiago then there's a lesson in there for all of us too about um, how we should live our lives and it's to embrace our passions and to try to help other people along the way
2: yeah. Wow. Um, so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think it's their authenticity. Um, you know, people can spot a phony a mile away Uh, we can spot it in our politicians. We can spot it in people when you're dating, you know, talk to young men and women who go out on dates and, you know, these, these quick dates and they can tell the authentic people from the phonies. And I feel bad for people that feel the need to not be themselves. And I get it. With social media today and competition, everyone's trying to put their best foot forward and trying to emulate their heroes. It's only natural for all of us to try to do that. But boy, the real gift for yourself is when you finally learn to love yourself and develop the natural talents that you have and to be authentic with who you are and stop trying to be somebody else. Because, you know, it's like, it sounds like the childhood cliche. I forget the cartoon with, you know, there's only one you, uh-huh. it can only be you. I think it was Sesame Street, but it's so true. You know, I mean, there's no one else like you. I mean, what makes some people so unique are their, are their quirks and idiosyncratic ways that they behave and their unique talents. We, we don't need another, uh, you know, uh, another Brad Pitt. We need an actor who's different, who brings different things to the table. Uh, um, so I would say that that's the most important thing is, is, is your authenticity, being who you really are. Amazing! Wow, Um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join
2: us and share your story and your insights, well, listeners. This has been just beautiful, breathtaking, heartwarming, and everything I thought it would be, on so much more. Uh, where wow. can we well, find out more you. about you and your work and everything that you're up to?
1: Well, it's pretty simple. johnpweiss@.com. dot com. Weiss dot com is where my blog is. I'm also on Medium. I have an Instagram account, Facebook, but you can find me on my website. But uh, I just want to say what a pleasure to be on the Unmistakable Creative. Love the podcast. uh, And it's been an absolute privilege to be with you this morning. Awesome. And for
2: everybody who's listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
3: Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The 4 Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com 4keys. Use the number 4, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com 4keys and download your free copy.